We come today to a very difficult passage of scripture. Hebrews 6, verse 4 to 12. I'm not going to go back on where we've been recently. It contains one of the most severe warnings in scripture. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to work it through with you. Holy Spirit, be our helper now, we pray. Open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. Amen. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. I'm going to read you some more verses to finish off later on. I think you'll agree with me. That, that's, that's serious. It's a serious warning. We have to approach this text carefully with consideration. It has, I believe, been misused and misapplied. It's often been held up in front of sinning, erring Christians, those wandering out of the path of faith and obedience to Jesus. Maybe they've fallen morally. Uh, maybe they've been overtaken in some, in some criminal activity even. As a terrible threat to them. It's like a kind of waving a stick over the head. If you go on like that, you won't be able to repent again, you know. In other words, these verses are used by some people to teach you can lose your salvation. But most Reformed scholars and commentators, and I kind of follow them, is understand it in the way I'm going to present it to you now. Now let me make something clear about the way we handle Bible, first of all. When we pick up our Bible, probably the first question we ask is this. What does this say to us today? What does this say to me today? That's a good question, but that can't be our first question. It's got to come second or even third. We have to start with, what did this say to them then? What was the Holy Spirit saying to the people who first heard or read these scriptures? When you read the book of Ezekiel, he was prophesying to the people in captivity in Babylon and to the people in Jerusalem. And, and what he's saying relates to those people. He talks about the king of Tyre as well and some other prophecies as well. But you understand it has a context it was spoken to them then. It has application still to us. But it was not addressed firstly to us, but to them then. What was the context, the situation? Who were the people? Where were they? What was happening at that time? Then, you see, we've got to understand this. The Bible did not fall through a wormhole in space from the pen of Paul to the hand of David. That is this David. It has been handled and understood and applied by millions of Christians across hundreds of years. Has it not? It wasn't sealed up, hidden on a hillside and discovered last year. How many of you know that's what they claim for the Book of Mormon? It's been the word of God to generational believers over hundreds of years and God has been speaking to them all the time too. It is very arrogant as an assumption to think that some passage of scripture has been locked up, closed up, and didn't mean anything until some smart guy just understood it this year. That is arrogant in the extreme. 
or even in the, in the early 20th century, whatever. So we have to ask the question, what did this mean to them then? So who was this written to and why? Well, the answer is in a, the title on your book there. In AD 64, thereabouts, Paul the Apostle, I believe, writes to the Hebrews, Christians from a Hebrew background. And I need to remind you of the first century situation it was sent to. It was written about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm talking too fast because I'm short of time. At a time of severe persecution was breaking out against the Christians by the Roman Empire, driven by the deranged, almost demonic, Emperor Nero. And Hebrew believers at this time faced a huge test. For if they denied being a Christian, if they disavowed Jesus, they would be left alone they would escape persecution. So we must understand that the words here in Hebrews 6 apply first of all to that group of people in the first century, the generation that saw the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the growth of the early church. So when we look at what it says about these people, let's apply it. Those who had seen Jesus, the Lord Messiah, for three and a half years, the Jesus the Messiah appeared to Israel from Galilee to Jerusalem, back up, back down. He walked and spoke and demonstrated the kingdom of God. They saw, they heard. They were, read the words now, once enlightened by Jesus, the light of the world, and tasted of the heavenly gift, had some experience of Jesus himself. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, as God the Holy Spirit was at work. They tasted the good word of God, spoken to them by, of course, the Lord Jesus himself. And the powers of the age to come, and that is when, whenever there was a healing, a miracle, the kingdom of God was breaking in. They were the powers of the age to come. But in the end, that generation, most of them rejected their Messiah. We read in John 1, verse 1 to 14, 11 to 14, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. I, that, those are terrifically sad words. But not all. Thousands if Hebrew people came to faith in Jesus after his resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, many of them were proselytes, people from other nations who'd become who'd be converted, and now they were hearing this good news about Messiah. And the Christian community in Jerusalem grew within just a few years to probably tens of thousands of believers before persecution scattered them to the nations. So these words have some general application to that generation to those who joined the early church. Maybe they hadn't seen Jesus in person. But as they joined the early church, they too, it could be said of them, were, uh, they outwardly identified themselves with the Lord and his people, and this description kind of works for them. They were once enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They experienced the presence and work of the Holy Spirit among the church. They heard the word of God being taught and they saw still these signs of the kingdom, powers, uh, power of signs and wonders, attesting to the, the resurrection of Jesus by the hands of the apostles and others. But now, these people, Christians across the Roman Empire, are under pressure to renounce faith in the Lord Jesus. But notice the repetition of the word tasted. It's very important. They tasted. They've had an experience, but they haven't fully received. Let me picture that to you. It's as if you're in a dining room, and while others are sat down and they're eating the full meal, you're just having a little taste. 
You're there, but you're only dipping in. You're only getting a bit of what's going on. They taste it. You see, there is such a thing as temporary faith. Jesus taught it, particularly in the parable of the seed and the soils. It's possible for for people to respond to the gospel even with joy, he says, but they have no firm root and they believe for a while, but in time of trial, trouble, they fall away. Temporary faith. Now, I can't deny the truth of the words of the Lord Jesus because I have seen it myself. Sad to say. There is such a thing as temporary faith until the trial, the trouble comes. There are also false believers, even during the first decades of the church. People were baptized and joined the church who turned out to be not true believers. There's examples in the book of Acts and in the epistles. I'll give you just one. Simon Magus, or Simon the Great One, who was a sorcerer. I mean, Acts 8, it turns out when he sees the Holy Spirit being given by the laying on of hands of the apostles, he says, give me, give me what, how much do you want for this, this trick? I want this trick in my magic trick. I want this in my bag. And they said, your money perish with you. You're not born of God. But he looked like it for a while. He was a false believer. Let's understand this expression, have fallen away. It's not the first time we've hit this phrase, fallen away. We need to understand what the Bible means by falling away. It's not just a drift back into worldliness and sin. That's sad and dishonoring to Christ. It's actually talking here about the rejection of Jesus. And in this particular case, for Hebrew believers, you know, sheltering back under Judaism because then they won't get persecuted. We've already seen this phrase earlier in chapter 3. Take care, brothers, that there be not in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's not, as the Paul Simon song goes, slip sliding away. That's like turning your back. That's, that's turning away. Quite deliberately. It's not always fallen. You know, Galatians talks about helping a brother who's been overtaken in a fault. He's fallen into sin. It's not that kind of fallen into sin. He's deliberately turned away. There's one word that sums up the warning of this passage of Scripture. It is apostasy. And that is really not an English word. It's a Greek word, apostasia and apostasia, which, we, which gets lettered up into English. It means rebellion. Rebellion. It's far more serious than backsliding into various sins. But I have to remind you, when we did it in Hebrews 3, the backsliding isn't what you think it is. It's tougher than that. See, that's the picture of a backsliding ox or heifer. The way we talk about backsliding is much kinder than the way the Bible uses the word. A backsliding ox sticks his feet in the ground and says, you'll break my neck before I'll come there. Do you understand? Stiff-necked. Sinews straining against the leadership of its master. Saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not coming with you. That's backsliding, according to the scriptures. We use it to describe someone who's you know, been overtaken in a fault. And that's very sad and we need to help them. But backsliding is, is quite a deliberate thing. Quite a deliberate thing. Apostasy is a rejection, denial of the Lord, and rebellion against him. So it's not so much just fallen away, it's dropped out, it's turned back. 
And the scripture says here it's impossible to renew those people again to repentance. Why? Because God won't receive them back? They, they can't be forgiven? No, it's, it's kind of because they're so hardened in heart and mind against him and the truth that the change of mind isn't going to come from inside them or from you trying to persuade them. How many of you know you persuade a man against his will, he's of the same opinion still? You ever hear that one? It's a northern saying. You know, you can try really, really hard to persuade somebody, to convince somebody, you won't do it. You won't do it. Because their mind is already set. Humanly speaking, these people are not going to turn around. They've rejected the heavenly gift of God's Son, they've grieved the Holy Spirit, they've refused the Word of God. Humanly speaking, they're not going to change. And repentance means a changed mind. F.F. Bruce Scholar says, God has pledged himself to pardon all who truly repent. But scripture and experience alike suggest it's possible for human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life where they can no longer repent. Humanly speaking, God could intervene. God could sovereignly do something by his grace. But humanly speaking, minds don't change when they've got that heart. Scripture also adds this to since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him again to open shame. Paul's been weaving an, an imaginary image for us here. Rejecting and denying Jesus would be like crucifying Jesus all over again and putting him to open shame. Like going back to Gabbatha, the, the pavement, with Pilate on the judgment seat and Pilate saying, what are you meant to do with him then? And the crowd are yelling, up with him, up with him, crucify, crucify. It's like you're back there again. It's like you put yourself there. Or being on Golgotha, standing before a naked, bleeding Jesus and saying, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. It's as if you're standing there. With this rebellion, with this apostasy, with this rejection and denial. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those who sake it's tilled, receives blessing from God. If it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. Whether the apostles writing about the generation had seen and heard the Lord Jesus and rejected him, or those who later joined his church and were now in danger of rejecting him, those people are here compared to unfruitful ground. Unfruitful ground. Worthless. Close to being cursed. It ends up being burned. See, again, let's go back to What did this mean to them then? With the coming of the Lord Messiah, Jesus, the Levitical offerings had been put to end by his final perfect offering of himself. The Mosaic covenant is dying. When Jesus died on the cross, at that moment, the veil that covered the Holy of Holies from human eyes was torn from top to bottom, whether by the hand of God or by by, by the hand of an angel. We don't know. But it was revealed to be an empty room. God was not in the house. It's over. Old covenant. They stitched it back up again, but the secret was out. The animal sacrifices were now utterly worthless. And within a few years of writing this letter, the Roman armies invade Judea. And within six years of the writing of this letter, Jerusalem is overthrown and the temple is torn down one stone from another, just as Jesus said. And Jesus, who prophesied these things about Jerusalem's destruction and about the temple's destruction, actually wept over Jerusalem 
having delivered those prophecies. The old covenant is old. It's redundant. It's fading away. We'll read that later on in Hebrews again. The new covenant which was sealed by the blood of Christ is now the active basis for God's dealing with men. And this letter is written at that time when the old is fading and the new has come. And in Hebrews 9 verse 6, Paul calls it the consummation or the end of the age. The very beginning of Hebrews talks about upon those us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. There's one age is closing. It's the age of Moses. It's closing. The age of Messiah has begun. So turning back to the Lord, to the temple, won't work. All that's coming to an end. Jesus has offered full and final sacrifice for sin. There's no other way for sins to be forgiven but through faith in him. Sounds so simple, yet it costs us so much to bow our hearts and admit that he's the only saviour. It's repeated through this letter to the Hebrews. The old covenant's ending, Jesus is better, there can be no going back. But just think for a moment about these words there. Just apply them to ourselves. Is my life, which drinks in day after day the rain of God's goodness, producing fruit which blesses others, or is it producing thorns and thistles? Is there some good thing from me that people can be blessed by as I receive all this blessing from God? This passage of Scripture is not actually addressing believers who are just falling into some sort of sin. It's addressing people who are being pressured, tested, tried about denying the faith. It's dealing with apostasy and blasphemy. Blasphemy is denying the Godhood of God. You could say atheists do that. Yes, they do. But anyone who says Jesus is not God, that's blasphemy. Jesus is not Lord. That that also is blasphemy. Most of the serious warnings in the New Testament are about this thing, about apostasy, publicly rejecting and denying Jesus by someone who'd previously been at least counted as a believer. So what does this warning say to us? What does this say to us today? Today, as back then, people can for a time, perhaps for years, kind of be in the company of the church, of the people. They, they identify some, themselves with the Lord, with his people. They gather with the saints. They join in to some extent. And guess what? Generally, we accept people anyway because we're a people of grace. Yes? We don't kind of go, oh, I'm not sure about him. Oh, I don't know about her. Oh, you know. Kind of, if you like, like you're keeping our little, little pencil and paper. I don't know about them. Yeah. We just take people as they are, don't we? We practice grace. But the time comes when faith or, you know, a faith which is claimed is tested by pressure or persecution or even by riches. Then what is not real, solid faith in Jesus, gut-level conviction about the truth of the gospel, Holy Spirit work, devotion to Jesus is brought to light. The foundation isn't there. People fall away, fade away, even run away. So I'm telling you today, best I know, best I understand it, this passage of scripture does not teach you that you can lose your salvation. The promises of the Lord Jesus and the word of God are sure. I haven't got time today to go back into Romans, John, things that if you've been around, as long as I've been around in my house, you've heard me preach. You know, If you're born of God, you can't be unborn of God. If you've been adopted by God, you're not going to be unadopted. There's no such scriptures. 
Those the Father has given to Jesus to, to, in, to be in his care and for whom he would die cannot be lost. He will lose not one of them. That's very clear. But those who for a time appear to be saved may actually fall away and even deny the Lord. The scripture here addresses that situation. And while few of us are tempted, tried, pressured today to avoid persecution by denying Jesus, as these people were facing, we are increasingly being put under pressure to shut up and not confess Jesus. The gospel causes offence, after all. It's not politically correct. It doesn't align itself with humanistic liberalism. For instance, it declares that all mankind is lost and can only be saved through the Lord Jesus. And the voices come back at us. But you're saying, you're denying the reality of all the religions. I'm saying, I'm just, I'm just uh, repeating the words of my master. Let me point you to the words of the Lord Jesus himself here. Matthew 10, and then Luke Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Luke 12. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. Interesting. Another way of saying it. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. But listen to this now. This is the further bit. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Or it can be forgiven him if he repents. Let's understand that. Yeah? It's not forgiven him automatically. It depends upon his confession and repentance. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And then straight afterwards, context, Jesus says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you're to speak in your defense or what you're to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus is anticipating the pressure, huge pressure, that his followers would come under and both warns and encourages them with these words. Apostasy, denying the Lord Jesus, rebelling against him. Is it an unforgivable sin? According to the words of Jesus, no, it is not. It can be forgiven. How do we know that? Because Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times with swearing, with oaths. And Jesus, a few weeks later, takes Peter aside and in three questions restores him. You got it? It isn't unforgivable. Jesus here does not say that denying him is unforgivable, irrecoverable. He says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is to deliberately denounce the work of the gracious and humble Holy Spirit as being the work of the devil, that will not be forgiven. We know from history that the early church had to deal with and restore people who had, under pressure of persecution, denied the Lord Jesus. And they had to go through a process of restoring them back. They had a special Sunday in the calendar to, to welcome back in those who had come back from having disavowed and, and now had repented. The grace of God had found them. But humanly speaking, it's impossible to recover and renew someone who's apostatized, rejected the Lord, because of themselves they don't come to that change of mind. But God's grace could lead them. His goodness could lead them to repentance. And if it does, 
we have to act in recovering and restoring mercy and grace as well towards them and build them back in to a life in Christ. So, let me say this to you. It would be a very foolish thing to sin in this way deliberately. To get yourself out of some sticky situation by denying the Son of God. Thinking to yourself, I can always repent and sort myself out later. That's one of the lies that sin lives on, like mold on rotting food. Make up your mind now, today, that you will not deny it. And if there are consequences, you'll suffer them rather than doing so. Let me put this to you as well. If you forsake, even for a time, the life of faith and obedience to Jesus, please, don't deny the truth. Don't deny him. Confess Jesus as Lord, God. Say Jesus is God and Saviour, but I'm, I'm just a very poor Christian. It takes some humility to say that, wouldn't it? Confess yourself as disobedient to him, failing to honour him in the way you live, but don't deny him. It's possible to still confess the Lord Jesus and at the same time admit that you're not doing it all well and you're not honouring him. That at least would be honest. Another piece of advice here is this. Don't attack godly people to try and justify your continuing in sin. Accuse other people to justify your own sin. That's what people do say. They try to deny the truth. Well, it's not true anyway. It's foolish to do that. The second thing is to try and excuse yourself because you look around and say, well, they're not perfect either. This one isn't and this one isn't. Uh, We're all the Lord's servants, by the way. None of us is the master of the others. Oh, and in Galatians 6 it says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So if you're in trouble, don't go around accusing other people because you're just making more trouble for yourself. Is that godly advice? Okay. So but having spoken very fiercely, the apostle is now very encouraging. Listen to this. This is remarkable. But, my loved ones... We're convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, even though we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown towards his name in having served, ministered, in and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, But imitators of those who through faith and patience, that's endurance, inherit the promises. Why, after such a strict warning, such a warning, I mean, it's it's severe, but then he says, but I'm convinced of better things of you. You think, well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? No. How many of you parents? Oh, you're you're slow, you're on the uptake. Okay. Okay, one of us do. Your parents. So you say, now, Johnny, don't go there, don't do that. Right? Why? Because you just want to boss them around? No, because you're protecting them. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Somebody's honest over there. Because you want to protect them from harm. Even a parent warns a child because you are aware of the harm more than they are aware of the harm. And sometimes you make the warnings pretty stinging. Yeah? That's why we have warning signs. I don't know which country has that one, but it's rather good, isn't it? (laughs) 
Why do we have warning signs? Because we don't want people to be hurt. So we tell them, please don't put your finger in the socket. Don't walk into this electrical plant. Don't go swimming in this river. You know, and people go, oh, it's all right. I'll do it, you know. We warn for a reason. So you don't go there. That's exactly why this warning is in Scripture. Please, please, don't go there. Don't go there. Paul is saying to them, it may be that some have appeared to be believers, have fallen away, they've denied the Lord, but surely you're not one of those. I'm convinced of better things of you. He'd seen signs of better things in them. They showed evidence of things that accompany salvation. Signs of the grace of God at work in them and through them. Not just, oh, I think I'm forgiven. But you can see that God's grace is at work in them. They've, they've loved the Lord and worked for him and for the good of his people. They now need to keep on, show the same diligence so as to realise the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't be sluggish. Be imitated of those who, through faith and endurance, inherit the promises. The best way to avoid falling away and dropping out is what? Press ahead. We've sung it in the song. No turning back. Keep going on rather than turning back. Pursue full assurance of hope until the end. Make it your goal to be satisfied, happy in God. That sounds, you you might think that sounds weird. Terry Virgo, elderly man now, was one of the founders of New Frontiers said this, I make it my job every morning, first thing, to make my soul happy in God. To to, to, to rest myself, I'm satisfied in the grace of God. I'm satisfied with the goodness of my God. It changes your attitude to the rest of the day. Settled and confident in his grace. That means you've got to maintain a clean conscience before him. So there are times we pray and thank him that by his grace we've been kept from sin, and there are times we confess that we have fallen in some way, even if it's just being rude to somebody that day, and we say, thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient to cleanse me and receive me and restore me and rebuild me. Assurance and hope are an inheritance now, until the end. It's not when you get to the end, They're our inheritance now. Full assurance of hope. Being confident. Being hopeful. Looking for the goodness of God. Resting in Him. It's it's not our normal condition of life. God does not set out for us as normal conditions of being a Christian that we're anxious and fretful and unbelieving and double-minded. Full assurance of hope. Pursue it. Go after it. And inheriting the promises of God is the theme we come back to later in Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, there's a whole roll call of those whose faith we need to imitate. But notice here today that inheriting his promises is not automatic or unconditional. It's through faith and endurance, which is a better word than the old English word patience. People think that by keeping a copy of a scripture or even some prophetic word that somebody gave them you know, in the 1970s in the back of their Bible, they can look at it from time to time and they go, it's going to happen one day. Well, I've got some news for you. It might not. It might not. You try to back that up, people, by saying, oh, Isaiah 55, you know, God's word that goes through his mouth will not return to him empty without accomplishing what he desires and so on. Now, listen, what the Lord commands cannot fail. But if you've taken a scripture out of context and run away with it like a little child running away with a toy, you just might have got that wrong. 
The Bible is not a lucky dip of words for you to juggle and resemble as we wish. The Americans eat, have it, we don't. Alphabet soup, you know, the spaghetti's made into letters. We had it when I was a kid. Alphabet soup, spaghetti made into letters. So you go to the Bible and you go, hey, where else can I go? Um, C, you know, you end up with, God's going to make me rich because I've just found all the letters. Don't mess around with the Bible like that. And secondly, when what someone prophesies to us might fail. Why? Because even the best prophets prophesy in part. They don't get it all right. The operation of prophecy in the church is not the same as Scripture. We know in part and we prophesy in part. And Thessalonians says we're to test prophecies, test them all, and hold fast that which is good, which means some of them we let go. Which reminds me of the advert for John West salmon and fish, you know? It's the fish that John West reject that makes John West the best. It's the prophecies you let go of that makes you hang on to the ones that you know are good. You don't need to cake. Someone prophesies something to me, I don't have to. I don't have to go away. Oh, I'm not bothered about it. If it doesn't sit, it doesn't register, it's, no, 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 I don't think so. That's fine. You've weighed it, you've, you've put it aside. But something strikes you, God's speaking to me there, take a hold of it, now do what? Put it in the back of your Bible and look at it from time to time. No, go after it. With faith that prays, that faith that obeys, that faith that acts. Right? God will not reward your laziness, your slothfulness. He will reward the diligence of faith. It's possible to have and no promises of God and yet fail to enter into them because we don't act in obedient faith, praying faith, enduring faith. You don't inherit promises from God just by confessing them, however loudly or however often, but by faith that prays, faith that obeys, and faith that endures. In the end, you see, well, I have caught up In the end, it's not whether we claim a conversion experience that matters, but whether we continue to confess Jesus and live for him to the end. Words of Jesus again. He who endures to the end will be saved. Now, does that mean he's not saved now? Yes, he is saved now. If he's born of God, he is saved. But the evidence of him being born of God and God's life being in him is he endures to the end. Are you turning it around? No, I'm connecting things together. Here's the, the confession. of. I'll give you the scripture for this in a minute. God preserves his saints through faith. Through faith. Through producing faith in them. Faith that sees him. Faith that seeks for him. Faith that searches the scriptures to hear his word. Faith that prays. Faith that obeys. He preserves his people through faith. And the fact they are his saints means they persevere in faith towards God. The just shall live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. It's not just start to live by faith and then go away and forget all about it. No, they continue to live by faith. Here's the scripture that says that. Having mentioned Hymenaeus and Philetus, men have gone astray from the truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place. They upset the faith of some. Paul writes this to Timothy. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. I imagine it's like two cornerstones on your way in kind of thing. The Lord knows those who are his. And not all who claim to be or appear to be maybe are his. Right? And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. That's the evidence you are his. 
that you're putting away wickedness and you're seeking to live for his glory and for his honour. So don't read this warning in Hebrews 6 as a measuring stick for yourself or other people. Paul writes in Corinthians, when we measure ourselves against ourselves, it's pretty dumb. I'm paraphrasing. It doesn't lead to any good. How am I doing? Well, I think I'm doing better than them. And them. So I mustn't feel too bad about myself because I'm not as bad as some people. Measuring yourselves against yourselves, blech, rubbish. Do not use this as a measuring stick to make yourself feel better than some other people. Please. And certainly, please, 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 do not use this stick to threaten and beat people. Especially when they've been overtaken in sin and they need us to help them to, to be restored and be rebuilt. And some people, they haven't made, they've made some profession of faith, they've, they've kind of responded in some way to the gospel. But we know they haven't really repented because they're carrying on the same way they used to. All right? There's still some stuff there that needs to be done in them. They haven't really got hold of the grace of God, or the God, put it another way, God's grace hasn't really fully got hold of them. They're not forsaking their sins to serve him. Mixture of light and darkness in that way does not honour Christ. He deserves better than that from those he bought with his blood. But those who are the Lord's will be led back from their failures and cured of their backslidings even, according to Scripture. And moral failure, even terrible moral failure, is not the same as apostasy. So I say again, no matter how bad a bunch of trouble you get yourself into, don't think that by denying the Lord is going to make it any bit better. Don't do it. Stop there. Confess him before men. Be diligent to pursue with diligence. Pursue full assurance of hope. Being settled, confident in the grace of God. And be imitators of those who through faith and endurance inherited promises. There are things we need to pursue. There are things we need to go after. And the safest way to avoid the pitfalls is to keep going the right way. There's a tendency in human beings. I've seen it myself. I know I was like that when I was a kid. You know, there's a certain age when you learn to handle risk. Before that, you need to be told where the risks are. And somewhere around your teens. You know, that's why teenagers will do, they'll do weird things. Some people never grow up, so they still do those weird things, you know, like flipping way over, the, you know, on skateboards and all that. There's a time when you get to think, this is a bit risky, you know. It's called growing up. And young male brains, it's a big change when you suddenly think, this is risky, I could get hurt. Because up until then you've been, I'm invincible. The danger is we don't take seriously the risk we're in at times. And we don't heed the warnings of Scripture. So it's a bit like, as I was going to say, it's a bit like, I've said this before, stay away from the cliff edge. What cliff edge? Looks all right to me. There's a reason why there are warnings. Just don't get involved. Don't do this. Yeah. Why? Because God's, God's, God's mean. He's not letting me have any fun. No, he knows that you're going to come to harm. He knows what's harmful for us. He knows what will defeat us. He knows that what will leave us beaten up and dejected. 
He knows what will ruin our marriage and our family. He knows that what will wreck us in our career. And so he's scripture, the scriptures come to us with serious warnings because like any good parent, God says, I don't want you to get there. I don't want you to get there. This is a serious warning. Let's understand what it's speaking about. But let's not ignore it. Let's settle in our hearts. I am God helping me. going to stand wherever it takes, whatever position, situation I come into, and I will confess it. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Even if I have to add, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a poor, I'm a poor example of that, but that's still true. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, we honour your great name. Thank you for your huge atonement made for us that covers all sin for all time. And thank you that those you forgive do not go around being unforgiven like you reverse the, the transaction. Lord, there are serious warnings in Scripture and we want to be adults who heed them. We're mourned. Scripture in Psalms, by these, by your words, by the law, is your servant warned. And in keeping your word, there is great reward. We want to pursue the reward and heed the warnings. We pray you will help us, Lord, and guide our feet in your way. We don't want to be looking over our shoulder. He who looks over his shoulder and turns back isn't fit for the kingdom of God. We want our eyes to be clear. We're heading towards our destination. To see you, to be received with joy into your presence. No turning back. Amen.